This evening, we're going to take a little break from our verse-by-verse through Isaiah, and we'll do a verse-by-verse in Leviticus. No, kidding. (laughs) Revelation, if you have your Bibles. Revelation chapter 21. We'll take as our text the 25th verse, but I'd like us to do change up a little bit and stand for the reading to give it context. So if you would stand for Revelation 21, I'll read verses 9 through 14. If you are unable to stand, that's okay, then stay seated. And sometimes you know, folks just, you know, have issue, health issues. Beginning in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me. And talk with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels. At the gates, the names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates to the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, and three gates to the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Please be seated. Gates in heaven, that's the message, but I'd like to preface the message. I think it helps sometimes to know how the pastor got to where he is hoping to go. Revelation 21, verse 25 is our text. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. This, uh, well, three Sundays ago in the morning... As is my custom, before service, I come in and I pray here in the sanctuary. It was about 5.50 in the morning, thereabout. And after I concluded my prayer, I I came up to the pulpit here. And I like to sometimes work from here rather than sit all the time. I can stand. It's better for my back, etc. And this will be my workstation, my laptop, my Bible, notepad. And uh, I, I did not feel like I prayed enough. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just sort of annoying, the few steps I had to take to come up. And when I got to that second step here, I clearly heard the Lord speak to my heart. And he said, you can always come back to pray more. The tone was unmistakably warm. And I knew it wasn't like, come back now. It was, you know, you just can always come back. My door is always open. So when I got up here, I immediately wrote those words down, and I even wrote down the time, because I knew it was the Lord speaking to me. I did not know if I was going to preach on it at some point. I found that out as the days came by, and my mind kept coming back to this, and I felt, you know, we could do a little break from Isaiah. And I... 
immediately turn to Revelation 21, delaying my study in the morning's message, Romans 1, verses 8 through 15. That's precious time, but I felt led to, to answer this uh, perplexity that had just been uh, answered by the Lord to me. And I had always been puzzled, why are there gates in heaven? I could tell you about the gates, I could tell you what the Bible says about the gates, but still, it always bothered me. Why even put gates there? And as we just read, not only are there gates, there's a wall around the new Jerusalem, uh, likely 200 and almost 220 feet tall. Some of that you can go a little bit here and there with it, nothing, nothing critical. So, um, you, you know, I, I knew this was now answered. Why are there gates in heaven? Because God has a good reason to shut us all out, but he's let us all in. And that's what was coming out of that one moment where he said, you can always come back and pray more. He will never leave us in this life, and he will never lock us out in the next life. These lessons about the future are for the present. They're not just some far-off teaching that God has, well, you'll find out when you get here. The Lord does not waste his words. When he wants something put in print and takes the time to preserve it over a few thousand years, he must be very serious about it. So important is the fact of God never leaving us and never locking us out of heaven is it has a witness in both Testaments. Now, I'm just going to take a few of them. In Thessalonians, when Paul is writing about the rapture, because the new converts at Thessalonica thought they missed it, and he writes to them, he said, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We'll always be there. Psalm 23, we all know this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then Ephesians chapter 3, To him glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what it says. Amen. You see, to serve the Lord effectively in a world where we are saddled with sin, this flesh, the temptations, the persecutions, the insanities, the devil, we need every bit of reinforcement we can get, and we need it often. It's not that we just become strong one day in our devotional time and we're good. What we don't leak out, we spend. There is always a need to replenish. And there are things like this throughout Scripture that are there for that very purpose. Now that's the preface. For now I want to go to the scene in heaven that John was experiencing. What brought all this about? This is after the millennium reign of Christ, the kingdom age, the thousand-year rule of Christ. Now, there is some space to kind of say, well, there's a new Jerusalem and a, and a renovated Jerusalem during the millennial reign. But I'm not going to get into all of that now. What I am going to say is that what John is talking about, what he is seeing, is the 
new heavens and the new earth, they're formed, and now he sees Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And it is enormous. I mean, it runs from Brownsville, Texas, to Bismarck, uh, North Dakota. It goes from Richmond to Denver. It's cubed. It's vertical. It's, it's horizontal. It's perpendicular. It's everywhere. It is, this, it is sort of a, a heaven mobile, an annex to heaven. It is heaven also. It is not all of heaven. It is a portion of heaven for the righteous. And so in this 21st chapter, into part of the 22nd chapter, we have a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. God is doing new things. The Lord has at this point incinerated the existing earth and heaven. What we have now is all going to be gone. Second Peter 3 but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will burn up, will be burned up. He continues in Second Peter 3, looking for the hastening and coming of the day of God because which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which the righteous dwell. And then Isaiah, who also covers this. Now Isaiah is just, you know, he, he talks about uh, Jerusalem's walls and the gates not being closed. But he's talking about millennial Jerusalem, when Christ reigns from Jerusalem. John is talking again about uh, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And, but Isaiah, just to point out the significance of these things, he says, For behold, God speaking through Isaiah the prophet, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. This is where we are going. This is why we want everybody else to go with us. Because all of this is... Glorious. In the chronology of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament and the tribulation saints, those who are converted after the church is raptured. And all those converted during the millennial reign of Christ. Because there will still need to be conversions during the millennial age. Now, people aren't just going to be born and born again. Uh... Just because. They're going to have to still make a decision. There'll be no devil, but they will st there will still be elements of sin. Well, those groups, the converted in the millennial age, these will make up the ultimate bride of Christ, dwelling in the prepared new Jerusalem. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, he left out all the details. And the details, some of which we're seeing here. Imagine what John did not write about. Imagine what he did not see that still remains for us to experience. We're not at all to think that this is an exhaustive description of what's coming. And not even the beginning. Well, it descends from heaven as we are told in verse 10. And the first thing John notices about <clears throat> this new Jerusalem which is in representative of the bride of Christ, of the believers of Christ. 
the dwelling place of the saints with God, with Christ Jesus. The first thing he knows, notices is the glorious brilliance and the precious stones. Then, the great high wall. And with the great high wall, its gates, the angels at the gate, the names of men inscribed on the gate. That's from verse 12. Twelve pearl gates. Verses 12 and 21. They're always open. That's our text. Verse 25. There are twelve angels, one at each gate. Verse 12. Twelve tribe, tribal names, each of the sons of Jacob. Verse 12. The gates, three in each direction. Uh, that about covers all the points on the compass. And of course, remember always, symbolism is scripture. The, the reality behind the symbolism is far greater than the symbol. We speak of Jesus as the Lamb of God because he was crucified to deal with our sin. And the Lion of Judah, as he returns to take authority of the earth. But still, he's greater than any Lamb of God, any Lion of Judah. He is God Almighty the Son. But the symbolism is fantastic. And it speaks to every age. It never goes, a lion is a lion. No, a lion will not have identity issues. And say, you know, I think I identify as a dog. It's not going to happen. He's always going to be a lion. Only those with free will... And the ability to reason apart from instinct, animals have more instinct than, anything, than, than, than they do free will, they, in the sense that I'm using. We're in God's image. We have the ability to reason, and we have a will. And it, it can overrule instinct, or it can go along with it, as the case may be. But anyway, I go down a rabbit trail. I want to get off that, that trail. Coming back to this, there are 12 foundations in verse 14. 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the streets are of transparent gold. All of this means something to us. All of this is say, God saying to us, let me tell you about me and you. The gates in heaven. Again, Revelation 21, verse 12. Also, she and you, if you have your Bibles open, feel free to look at that rather than look at me. <laughs> also, verse 12, Revelation 21. She had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Well, the church is not going to be left out of this. There is not only one open gate, as I mentioned, there are 12, and they are huge. And how do we know that when the dimensions are not given? Uh, well, again, there being no danger... The gates are there to tell us that we are desired, that we are welcomed, that we are not a threat, that we are loved. Jeremiah tried to express to the Jewish people as God was disciplining them that God doesn't stop loving his people. Now, those that are judged are in another category. But we're talking about the righteous, those who want to, at the very least, want to submit to God. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 Yahweh has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That's the city. John looked at this glorious city and he was attracted to it. 
You say, well, but then that was for the Jews. No, it's for the New Testament church. First John chapter four. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You, you know how much is baked into that word propitiation? He sent his son to suffer and die for people like us. And we are being very welcomed in heaven. And God's the scripture says from the Lord, I don't want you to wait to get to heaven to understand I want you in heaven. I'm looking forward to you being with me. And I want you to bring with you as many as you can. The gates are wide open and there are many gates. You come. Whosoever will, let them come. Why don't men believe these things? The sin serious business. So again, not only do the gates indicate that it's a mutual desire, our desire to enter, his desire to have us, but it speaks of free will. This is what we want to do. God's not shoving us into the gates, and we're not struggling to stay out. This revealed to us in this church age, so that we know, as Jude wrote the church, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You might not like yourself. A lot of other people might not like you. But God loves you. And God's not finished with you. Listen to that thing that Jude says here. He says, he is able to keep you from stumbling. But it does not say he promises to keep you from stumbling. You're going to stumble. But God is already ready. He's ready for that. He wants us with him, and it's personal. Revelation 21 now, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, it's personal. The endless Shekinah with us, and we with him. This is what he wanted from the Jews. Exodus chapter 25. When they were out of Egypt. He told Moses. And let them make me a sanctuary. That I may dwell among them. This is something to tell unbelievers. God wants to dwell with you. But he's got to be Lord. And we'll come to that. And so you can always come back to pray more. My door is always open. There's nothing shutting these gates. There's no barrier between you and me. Jesus has removed it. You can always come back and spend time with me. And I'm going to write this into law. Because our text, verse 25, tells us its gates shall not be shut at all. Can you imagine the day the Lord issued that order? Just on terms so we can illustrate the point. I want the 12 gates. I want them out of pearl. And I don't want them ever shut. That's how the order was likely for us, for the sake of illustration, given. We catch the force of the whole thing. You can always come back and spend more time with me. And that's what I felt as I came up to the pulpit. A welcoming hand of God for no reason. It's not like I just baked a cake for him or something. I fumbled through my prayer. I didn't feel, you know... I didn't do justice to my time with God, but he did justice to me, undeserved. 
God wants us to know. Again, I keep saying that because it's that important. And the descriptions of New Jerusalem, packed with symbolism, meaningful things. We'll get to the twelves in a minute. Well, or a couple of minutes. But unlike Noah's ark, the door shut. Time ran out. God shut the door. Genesis 7, verse 16. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Those who obeyed the command are those who benefited from God's safety. That's how he is. He was that way then. He is that way now. He changes not because there's nothing about him that needs to be changed or modified. He's always perfect. And we're looking forward to the splendor of glory that awaits us. God's open gates express his open heart. His open hands, powerful hands, he's sovereign. When we talk about sovereign grace, we're not talking about from this pulpit as some other doctrines might use that, those two words. What I mean by sovereign grace is that God is almighty and he is all loving. And that love, of course, is qualified by that relationship with him or that sovereignty turns into wrath. Take it or leave it. But no one's going to be able to say, I didn't have a chance. Well, God's open gates, his desire, his power, his eternity. Revelation 21, 25, again, our text, its gates shall not be shut. God has ordered, don't ever close them. These are monuments, these things that John is seeing on the city as it descends. Joshua, when the Jews had crossed into the promised land and he was told, put 12 stones in, take 12 stones out. And just a summary of that, Joshua 4 verse 20, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal as a monument to say to the people, don't you forget, don't you forget how we got here. Don't you forget who your God is. Don't you bow down to these stones. But understand who your God is. Revelation 21.12. Also, she had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. 12 is that monumental number that is used 21 times in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Seven times in this chapter. I understand it to represent divine delegated authority. Well, you have the 12 wall, uh, one wall, but 12 foundations in the New Jerusalem. You have the 12 apostles. They were given authority, uh, the authority to pen the New Testament. They had authority over the church, which you bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven. How, how deep is that authority? Twelve gates, twelve pearls, twelve tribes of Israel, twelve angels, twelve thousand furlongs, about fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred miles of cubed, as I mentioned. It is a city of exclusion, nonetheless. Even though those gates were never closed to his people, even though it has a great high wall and open gates, it is still a city of exclusion. That's not the whole story. Revelation twenty one verse one Revelation twenty. 
uh, the last verse of Revelation 20, which is uh, verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. They were excluded. And it's not random. It's linked to the gospel message. So a city of inclusion also, not only exclusion, but also inclusion. Having many open gates facing in many directions. It makes sense to emphasize that the height of the wall, while not specified, when you speak of a wall, when you get to verse 17, which I don't want to spend too much time on these kinds of things this evening, they're saved for verse-by-verse considerations, but he measured his wall 140 cubits according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. So the angel is using a standard that was used in those days for John's sake to let him know how large these walls are. But when we think of a wall, we don't think of width so much. We think of height. Width is a part of it. The walls of Babylon were very broad. But still, height is paramount. And I bring that up to say that the wall, uh, John would have noticed, some 200 feet high. Now, compared to the height of the city itself, that's very low. The purpose is the symbolism. Together, the walls and the gates represent protective barriers and freedom accessed. The walls are monuments, and the Jews understood that. Again, we go to Isaiah. He's speaking about the millennial Jerusalem. And he says, Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting or destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Well, how much greater will it be in heaven? The point is, the Bible has spoken on the symbolism of walls and the gates. In fact, Nehemiah, they wanted to get those... those Nehemiah is about putting the walls that were ruined back up because they, they were for protection, yes, but they also symbolize the salvation of the people, which is a form of protection. Twelve gates of praise. And, uh, again, large gates, which means that if the walls were large, the gates are going to be large. Oftentimes, gates are the same height as the walls. And being made from pearl, that, of course, is going to cause us to talk about the pearl in a little bit. But each a reminder that they could have been closed to sinners and are not. We're not entitled, but we got something better. We are loved. Now, the 12 angels, we are told in Hebrews 12, verse 22, that there are an innumerable amount of angels. But yet, one is positioned at each gate, and we know what one angel can do from the book of Isaiah, wipe out an entire army in an evening. Uh, We also know that one angel will snatch hold of Satan and chain him, cast him away for a thousand years. So you're curious as to why. Well, after God evicted man from Eden, he posted a dangerous angel at the entranceway. Genesis 3, verse 24. So he drove out man and he placed cherubim, more than one cherub, at the east end of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, God did not want man to take of the tree of life, which would have had them live forever in a sinful state. 
And he was so serious about this, he tells us, I put supernatural beings there to keep this from happening. There's no way that couple was going to touch that tree because I care. As much as we go through in this life, God says, yeah, I see it, I know, but it's going to be a drop in the bucket compared to what's coming. You stay focused and you keep the faith. When you suffer and you weep, I'll weep with you, but you got to do it. Well, that was Eden, this is heaven, and the angel at this gate is an ally. He's not swinging a sword this way and that way. So why is he there? Because they too speak of salvation. Luke chapter 15, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're rooting for us. They're on our side. Hebrews chapter 1, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation, they have their role. Daniel dealt with them. He dealt with Gabriel. He dealt with an unnamed angel. And God is saying, yeah, they're part of the whole package of all the things that have gone on. I've used my angels to throw Satan out of heaven. Michael could have done it himself. (laughs) I I, I don't know which angel. The the angel that chains up Satan is not named I don't know that I want to shake his hand, but I sure want to see him. So the 12 names here, the names of the tribes and the gate, well, they indicate different human personalities. Each one of those sons of Jacob had a different personality. And it's, it's, it's emblematic. It's saying God sees all the different quirks, the different, you know, people get together. You just like certain people. You just flow with them. The rhythm is easier Maybe than others. Doesn't mean that the others are bad. It's just that this is the way it is. It doesn't mean you're rude or indecent or anything like that. You may have just more in common with someone and you prefer a meal with them than than someone else. These things are, are acceptable. Because no love is violated in and of itself by just that. Anyway, these different personalities are integrated into heaven. 1 John 3, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be purified. We won't be saddled with sin. We'll never be divine. That part of his, of his, his essence will never enter into. But we will be what God meant us to be, those who enjoy obeying him. The twelve tribes, that's where assembly started the cradle of the synagogue, and it is the cradle of the church assembly. Don't don't let Satan try to deceive you into thinking that the local assembly is second fiddle to the universal church. It's the other way around. You take away the local church, you won't have a universal church after a while. The local assembly of believers is big stuff, and that's why Jesus said, you do this in remembrance of me. And he did that with his disciples sitting at the table, assembled, Serious business, that's unfortunate. We see so many Christians come against. Anyway, this, um, these Jewish tribes, they also represent the gateway to Messiah and of Messiah. Where would we be without the Old Testament scriptures? How would the New, church, New Testament church have, how would they have functioned without the scriptures? And who held those scriptures? Coming from the Jews to the Jews and to the nations, even though they didn't want to give it up. 
They have, God had enough men to, to, and women to make it happen. Well, I don't want to take the time, but I'll just take a portion of Isaiah 11. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And those that's the Messiah. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We know this one. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and as it says, for also the Greek, the, the Gentile, the people who are not Jews. And so this, um, uh, the Jewish dimension of the Jewish tribes is directly linked to the heritage of the church, the processes of God, the prophecies, the scriptures, uh, the, the apostles, the, the saints, you and me, the tribulation converts, 144,000, which is a multiple of 12, by the way. Uh, it's just these, it's incredible how the scripture just ties in one thing after another is inseparable. Jesus holds the rights, the keys to heaven. And he shares some of that authority. I spoke about the delegation of his authority and the number 12 representing that. He chose to begin unlocking salvation during his humanity. Matthew chapter 16, he tells his disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's not talking about casting demons out of people. He's talking about preaching the gospel. If you preach the gospel according to the scriptures and that person receives me, it's done. My authority is all over it because I've set it up. And then he tells John in Revelation 1 verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. I'm in total control of these things. And I do delegate, and I'm in control of those who I delegate to. Heaven is open for all, but not for everyone. And those who don't get in, they didn't want to get in. Now we come back to the pearls of the gate. Revelation 21, 21, 12 gates. Now he, it's interesting how he says 12 gates, but he doesn't say 12 gates of pearl. He says the 12 gates were 12 pearls. So he's using that word 12 again. You, you catch the, the repetition. Why not just say 12 gates of pearl? Because again, that number 12 is symbolic. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Imagine what other things we're going to see when we get to heaven. A pearl is the result of an irritant. Most of you know this, but maybe you don't, or maybe you've not seen it in the light of Scripture. A shelled mollusk will have some particle, often microscopic, microscopic, like a clam will have something get in during their feeding or their breathing time, and it will produce an irritation. To answer that irritation, they will begin secreting what they need to to form a pearl. It is a solution to the irritation. And so the pearl is the result of an irritant being dealt with, being neutralized. The pearl is evidence of a response and its solution. 
And those gates in heaven are made of pearl. They are memorials of God's grace that we were irritants because of sin. And he has dealt with it. And thus the symbolism, the value of our salvation. In Matthew, Jesus gave this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, there are two competing interpretations of that verse, that parable. One is that Christ is the merchant and the pearl is the church. And Christ found the church to be beautiful, the church consisting of Jews and Gentiles. And I believe that that is a proper application of the parable. The other one is that Our salvation is worth everything, everything we have to get hold of that salvation. I think that's right, too. I think they're both proper applications. I I think that um, usually there is a primary and a secondary application, but in this particular parable, I think they both work equally. And as you read it and you come away saying, well, is that the Lord seeking the church? I think you need some Bible study to come to that conclusion. But I think the initial study is, this guy got hold of something very valuable. He sold everything to get it. And I can say, that's about my salvation. And so my point is, either, no matter how you look at that verse concerning laying hold of the pearl, the Bible says, this is of great value and it has to do with salvation. And so, my gates are always open to those who come to me, says the Lord. Because this is what salvation does. We know what sin does. What does salvation do? It saves me from the poison, the toxins of sin. Sin has made us irritants. And God has a solution. And the gates tell about that solution. These are enormous pearls. Because it needs enormous grace. How large was the irritant to make gates so big? Now, of course, I don't think God had a clam or oyster that big, and he opened it up one day and took out the pearl and had craftsmen fashion the gate. I think he spoke it into existence because that's what he does. And he does it (laughs) without any... Again, you know, you get the... So light travels, we know the speed of light. You look at some of the stars and you say, you know, it takes millions of years for that light to reach Earth. How could the earth be just 6,000, say 8,000 years or so old if light takes that long? Well, God, when he created Adam and Eve, how old was Adam? He created him an adult. He created him in a matured state. Why wouldn't he create the universe in a matured state? Why does he have to wait around for fossils to develop or something like that? He can create things in a matured state. And uh, I... That's what I truly believe and have no problem with it. In the beginning, God created. didn't say at what stage the things that he created. were. When he created the trees in Eden, Eden, if you cut one open with a chainsaw, which I would have done if he asked, and you counted the rings, how many would have been there? It's like, there's no rings, but this tree is fully matured. I don't know. You know, the whole, did, did you know, Eve have a belly button? Did Adam, Adam have a belly button? I don't know. You know, that's humorous stuff. Harmless enough. Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. And I will go through on streets of transparent gold in the end. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that transparent goal speaks of transparency. Because there is purity. There's nothing to hide. Revelation 21, 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. Then he goes on to say, and the street was of pure gold. Pure, no impurities, transparent as glass. And so the pathway through the gates, through these gates of pearl, are on streets of transparent gold because there's nothing to hide and there is everything to see. I mean, if you seek and if you can see through the street, there must be something else on the other side. It's interesting, if you go to Israel, you can see some of the archaeological digs in, like, shopping malls. They're underneath the ground, heavy in engineering, and uh, they have little windows in the mall, and you can look through the little windows down at the archaeological dig. That is nothing compared to what's coming in heaven. And so, why are there even gates in heaven? Because I hope that we understand that uh, there's not only because there's nothing evil coming in. We get that. That's the and that's the perplexity. Well, then why have the gates? It's because God is saying, "Let's talk about why you're here, and how much you're loved." That you could have been locked out, but that we can always come to Him even now. In this life. If I can come to him in heaven. If the gates are open in heaven. They're open now. Thus the voice. Psalm 100 verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. And bless his name. I guess you could look at those gates. From a sinner's perspective. And just praise the Lord. Just, man, what went into my salvation? How great an irritant I was. How he has dealt with it. And how he has made a monument of my salvation to his glory. And so the gates do speak of sovereignty, but they speak of care. God forbids sin in this life because sin is a toxin. And God hates sin because he loves us. And the unbeliever doesn't see it that way. The unbeliever thinks God is interfering with fun. And that is, uh, of course, a lie from Satan in the flesh. A suffering man once said, I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. That was a Gentile. And now the foundations, Revelation twenty one nineteen. the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald. Foundations run deep in, well, if you're putting up a skyscraper, they run very deep. They're very strong and they're very ugly and they usually put out of sight eventually. Those are the foundations of men, unsightly and um, out of sight. But the foundation of New Jerusalem are glorious because they speak of, again, how we got to those gates. They represent the church, the pillar and the truth. That pillar is foundational. 
In Ephesians 2, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens, which is why the gates are wide open, with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And yet, he sort of withdraws out of sight. He's totally in it. He's appointed these apostles And it's their names that are inscribed on the foundation. And it's only because he's done the work he has done. The names of the apostles on the foundation signify service and suffering. Because, again, remember, the Jews suffered because of disobedience. The church suffers because of obedience. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Jews would go up one half on Mount Ebal and the other on Mount uh, Gerizim. And from Mount Gerizim, they would pronounce the blessings if the people would obey God. And from Mount Gerizim, they would pronounce the curses if they disobeyed God. And that is what's happened to them. And so, yeah, the names of the apostles, significant. Uh, Now part of the foundation, which the New Jerusalem is built. uh, And uh, 12 foundations with the 12 apostles of the Lamb. New Jerusalem is described all the way through into chapter 22, verse 5, which we're not going to go into because we're almost done. Part of the plan was to get you out earlier this evening and set you up for a late finish next time we go back to Isaiah. Well, I want to close with there are other gates, and we can't dismiss them. There are gates that are watched, They watched the gate in Damascus so they could kill Paul. He beat them. And there's a lesson for us about these other gates. Just because they're watched doesn't mean we're going to fail. There are iron gates that Peter faced when he was trying to, when he was being taken out of Herod's jail. And the Lord miraculously delivered him. Because it was an iron gate and Peter could not have gotten out himself. Paul, on the other hand, was let down by Uh, fellow disciples. And so there you have one of miraculous deliverance and one of of, uh, uh, physical deliverance, spiritual and physical, both spiritual, of course. So we have to face gates that are watched and gates that are ironed. There is the narrow gate which leads to heaven. And you have to press into that one. It's not a wide opening. You cannot sashay in. It is met, uh, there's resistance. And resistance is that bulky flesh that we carry around. It is a gate to press into. And Paul writes to Philippians, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm pressing through. Well, there's one more gate. And that is hell's gates. There are many of them. The gates, plural, of hell. Now, there's a dual meaning to the gates of hell. There are the symbolically physical gates of defenses against hell's interests, her fortifications. Satan has fortifications. Just try to reach some people with Christ. You can't. You've got fortifications up. They have walls up and they're high. And then the gates of hell in the scripture, particularly the Old Testament, that's where the command center was. That's where the strategies of war were laid out, at the gates. And then they would go out of the gates and, and do, the, do the fighting. And so when you spoke of conquering the gates, you were talking about beating their pentagon, for example. 
And uh, interesting, at 9-11, did they not target the Pentagon? Um, So the gates of hell, uh, they are, it's a wide gate. You you can sashay into that one. You can actually hold hands with a bunch of people and all skip right into hell if you'd like to. But those gates are avoidable. The populace who enter those gates are locked in forever. There are no human exits. There's only exits for the demons to do what they do. And they are there because the people that are in behind those gates, they are there because they refuse to be told what to do by Christ. He can't be Lord if he can't tell you what to do. Now, what troubles us is we want to do what the Lord tells us to do, but the flesh interferes. God understands that. And that's why he says, uh, you know, there is now no condemnation that has overtaken you. Even when he, when he says, uh, well, there, there's now no temptation that has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. What you face, all people face in some form. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What is the way of escape? Tell me, because I can't stop this sin. It is forgiveness. That's the way of escape. Come under his lordship. And there will be no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Paul writes about that in Romans, O wretched man that I am. He didn't say, wretched man that I used to be. And wretched man that I am, chief of sinners. And yet, thank God in Christ Jesus that he has a Savior. What uh, You've heard the silly saying, God helps those who help themselves. That's ridiculous. I need God to help me when I can't help myself. And if God helped only those who helped themselves, everybody would be gone. Nobody would be helped. Uh, You don't have to take that from that that gibberish scripture of their own. Anyway, uh, they're in hell because they refuse the lordship. If he cannot be Lord, then he cannot and will not be Savior. And when uh, we invite people to come to Christ, we say we, add, we encourage them to pray that the Lord would be not only their Savior, but their Lord. Because you can't have one without the other. So I don't have to wait to get to heaven to be welcomed by God. I am welcomed now. And so are, so are all of those equally as welcomed who come to Christ. Amen. I close with this verse from Hebrews. For here we have no continuing city, Hebrews 13, 14, but we seek the one to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your words as always. They are rich and they are wonderful and they are powerful. And though we don't see it all the time, You see it. You see the finished product. You see the trail of your soul, and you are satisfied. You are glorious, and you are wonderful, and we love you and worship you. And ask you to get us home safely tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.